All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, 14, 14. I'm confident it's 14. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be looking uh, at chapters uh, 14 and 15. If you're you're just, you've kind of parachuted in here, it's... um, Memorial Day weekend, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and um, which uh, may sound scary or odd or, you know, when people ask me what I'm preaching through these days, I say the book of Revelation, I get a myriad of responses, most of them, <gasps> really, um, most of the time I hear, I've never heard anybody preach on the book of Revelation because they were smart, that's why they didn't preach on it. Um, it's probably, it's one of the only books that John Calvin didn't write a commentary on, um, probably for good reason. But um, we've been ma- making our way through it, and I, and I trust, I hope that it's been an encouragement to you at some level. Um, I, know, uh, I know I'm not answering all your questions. I'm, I'm trying to take a little bit higher view um, in terms of just uh, more of a, the big picture. And, and the book really is for our encouragement. That's why it was given to us. Um, it was given to encourage the church. And so we are trying uh, our best to uh, discern uh, how so. And, um, and so this morning, Marion has already read for us chapter 14. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the first part of chapter 15, and then we'll jump in with the time we have. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. And they held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So I'll just pause, give you a little commentary there, because we've already had one song at the very beginning of chapter 14. So the section that we're looking at this morning is the beginning of 14, now the beginning of 15. You get the two kind of bookmarks, and it's songs, right? They're they're singing because they're triumphant, because they've won, because they're victorious. And so here at the beginning of 15, it's an interesting song because it's both a it's it's a compilation of songs, if you will, from both Moses and the Lamb's new song, the song that only those who are redeemed can sing. And so what you get the what you get the picture of then is right down through the ages. This song that Moses has sung has been the song of God's people, right? You have redeemed us. You came, you sought us, you bought us, you brought us out of captivity, you redeemed us. He he gave them the exodus. And all of us, in a sense, have followed that pattern of the exodus. Therefore, we have a right to sing the song. And so they're there, they're at the lake, and they are singing the song, the song of Moses and uh, the song of the Lamb. And here's their song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 
Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the song. What a beautiful song. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word this morning as we come to it. We pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it will be acceptable in your sight. For your glory and for our good. Amen. So, last week, Marion preached chapters 12 and 13. And if you think back, and uh, if you look at chapters 12 and 13, you have the woman and the dragon in chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, you get the dual picture of the beast from the land and the beast from the sea. Okay? But generally, if you put those two together, what you are getting is you are getting a picture of the dragon and those who follow the dragon, the evil one. You, you get this, you get this all-encompassing picture that the dragon is still on the move. He is still busy. He is still doing, he's doomed. Chapter 12 tells us he's done for, but he is trying his hardest to continue to create havoc and, and to pull, if he could, even the elect away from the Savior. And so the beast is active, and, and, um, and so you get that overarching picture in chapters 12 and 13. And so when you, get, when you get to the end of 13, and you get the scary number, 666, okay, uh, which Marion completely and totally avoided. He did not even tell us who that is. Um, but when you get to the end of chapter 13, you, what you, what you should have a sense of, or what you should be feeling, because remember, the original hearer is just hearing this. So these images are coming at them as the, as the text is being read. Um, you, you know, you and I have so much more visual perception, really, probably, of, we've seen so many, you know, movies and images that, we probably some of this was maybe lost on us, but this is this is really big stuff for origi- the original here. And so you get to the end of chapter fourteen or thirteen, and you would be sensing this: what now? What could possibly come after the beast and and uh, the beast of the earth? In verse sixteen of chapter thirteen, you get this: He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on his hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. So. Look, you know, you, um, I don't know where you're at in the whole spectrum. Um, I tend to be more of the mind that it is, uh, that the mark, okay, is the system. More than anything, right, the beast has a, a system, a way of doing things. So it's an, it's an alternate view, if you will, of reality. God has created the world in which we live. He gave it structure and order. And, and he has set, he set it all in motion. The beast is working to corrupt all of that. And so, uh, those corruptions that you and I know, and we know them because the natural state of things in our lives would be to follow the order of the beast. 
that would be what we were born into. That's what we were programmed for. We were programmed because of the sin of Adam to flow easily into the pattern of the beast, the the ways of the world, if you will. And so that's the natural bent that we have. But because of the call upon our lives, because we've been saved, because we've been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and our feet planted firmly in the kingdom of light, because that's happened, now the discernment that we have allows us to stay out of, if you will, the the pattern of the beast. So that system, right, is is all-encompassing. If you have the mark, if you think like the beast, if you are... Um, if you are um, still bent in that direction, then that system, that order is the way that you're doing life. Um, and you can think of a myriad of ways. You, anything and everything, any aspect of life, the beast has corrupted that. And so if your heart hasn't been changed, you will live that way. <clears throat> so when you come out of chapter 13... When I finish reading chapters 12 and 13, I have this pervading sense of, oh, wow, this is heavy stuff. This is like, I mean, it's it's almost terrifying. And where's the hope? I mean, what is our, like, we know the system. Um, we know the system's in place. You know, you, you look around the world, you see the corruption, you see governments that are in, in, uh, you know, bad shape, they're bad for their people, uh, their people are oppressed, they're killed. I mean, just look, just follow, alright, if, if you wanted to do the beast as a person, just look at the people that have lived like the beast who have been in, po- in positions of power down through the ages, right? You've got, beginning with Nero, who would have been right about this time, who's taking Christians, you know, dipping them in vats of tar, you know, putting their bodies on stakes and burning them for the light for his parties, okay? Um, the Roman ruler Nero. Y- you just begin there, and you just go down through the ages, and there's just one after another after another. You know, in the last... 200 years, we have a, a number of them that we could name off, that we're familiar with. And um, and they did terrible things. They've killed millions, hundreds of millions of people have died at their hands. And so you get all of that. You're, you're coming out of that chapter 13, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, who can who can endure? Where's the hope? What is in it for God's people? I mean, who who are we and what are we doing in all of this? And then you get the opening salvo at the beginning of 14. You, you don't have to wait. There's no, you know, tune in um, next week. It's right there. And the very next scene um, is a powerful reminder that God's plan, right, is still in operation. He is still carrying out his plan. So if we go back a few chapters, we have the unbreaking of of the seals and the scroll, and God's plan is laid open. And that plan is still moving forward, unimpinged, unheeded, and we get that picture right here at the beginning of 14. Chapter 14 begins with a celebration. The 144,000, we'll talk about them in a minute. I'll probably do more work on them than we've done on any one thing. We'll talk about them in a minute. But there they are. And what we hear is 
that they are singing. Now, following that is, is two vision cycles. The first is three angels, and then the second is two harvests. And what follows that is the beginning of chapter 15 and another song. So the songs of celebration are the bookends. Okay, now the song at the beginning of chapter 15 also leads us into the final series of plagues. But it's the ending, if you will, of this section, chapter 14. And, um, it, you know, in your Bibles, they didn't, they didn't always, you know, they didn't come with chapter verse, right? So uh, those were put in somewhere along the way. Um, and, uh, and sometimes the breaks aren't always as clean as we would like them. This is probably not the cleanest break. Um, if I were doing it, I would have included the first part of 15 and 14, but that's just me. And so we're going to take that with, with, uh, with the last half of 14 and, and look at it as a, an, a unit. Chapter 14 opens with the lamb. Then I looked, John looks, and before me there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, this is an important picture because the lamb is contrasted in 14.1 with the, with the beast and 13.1. If you just flip over one chapter... Um, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Okay? So, two images to start these two chapters. One is the lamb standing on Mount Zion. The other is the beast standing on the seashore. Now, don't lose that image. Because that is a, that is a no kidding statement about the surety of those two figures. Mount Zion is the place on, it is the, the mountain on which God has established His Messiah. All the way through Scripture, Mount Zion is God's mountain. Sometimes viewed as heavenly, sometimes viewed as earthly, but always the location of the Messiah. So, that's God's mountain. Now, you think about mountains. Um, I was just talking with somebody the other day about Gibraltar. If you've ever been there, it really is this massive rock, right? I mean, it's this gigantic chunk of granite sticking up out of the ground, and uh, and it's got huge cannons all over it. It was a fortress in its day. That's what you think when you think, when I think mount, when I think mountain, I think big, giant chunks of granite that are unmovable. They're solid. They're, they're steadfast. They're not going anywhere. And that's the image that's intended when you see the Lamb, okay, on Mount Zion at the beginning of 14. That should indicate to you and signal to you God is in control. The Lamb is sure and steadfast. He's in place. He's unmovable. But what about the beast? Well, the beast in 13.1 is where? Standing on the, on the shore of the sea. Now, have you ever stood on the edge of the ocean without your shoes and the water comes up and it, and it runs between your toes and it goes out? What happens? You go down about an inch because the sand on the seashore is shifting. That image is intentional. You and I didn't, you know, you didn't. You're not dreaming. That's really the idea. And that is really the idea that's intended because he's on the edge of the sea. Guess what's going to happen to that sea? 
It's going to disappear. The sea is going to be gone. At the end of the book of Revelation, there is no sea. Why? Because that's the dwelling place of the beast. So the ocean is a bad place. And in this instance, it is also the place where the beast is standing, but it is not sure and solid ground. It's ground that gives way. And so he is indicating to us, listen, he he looks scary, he looks frightening, he's big and terrible and all of that, but he is going away. And the Lamb is sure and steadfast, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, one of the things that you see here at the beginning of 14 is that we have the 144,000. And one of the things that is said there is that they have his name, the Father's name, written on their foreheads. So all the terrible stuff about the image of the, of the mark of the beast, well, guess what? God has marked his out as well. And so that's just an indication to us that um, these belong to the Father. They bear his name and, and the name of the Lamb, exactly the way those who bear the mark of the beast um, are owned by the beast, so those who bear the mark of the Father belong to the Father. So you kind of get that picture. Um, and let's, let's just talk a little bit about these 144,000. Who are they? Because it's an, it's an important part for us, and, and this may not skew with your view, but for several reasons, it, it's my belief that the 144,000 are a picture for us of the redeemed of God. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that, and, and I want to kind of work through some of them for you. The first is, <clears throat> this is the same 144,000 that we've already seen in chapter 7, okay? And according to chapter 7, and according to this chapter, they are sealed on their foreheads. Now, that purpose of the seal um, is not to protect them from harm because we know from chapter 6 that uh, there's going to be a multitude have, who have been martyred and those are from amongst the redeem of God's people. So receiving the mark doesn't mean you get away scot-free. Receiving the mark means that you are His, right? He marks you out. He authenticates you. He puts His seal of ownership, if you will, on you. And so God has done that. He has marked out those who are His. And there's nothing that can break that. You could, you could put it together, if you will, with the, with the seal of the Holy Spirit, with that reference. So we are marked out. We are His. And nothing can break that. It's an unbreakable seal. Uh, you could tie it, if you will, to the perseverance of the saints. Right, So those whom God has called to himself, who have um, bowed the knee to Jesus, who have received him as their Lord and Savior, confess them, who carry on to the day of completion, right? Because that is ultimately the evidence of faith, is that we carry on to the end. Those who carry on to the end have the mark of the Lord upon them. And so in this picture, the 144,000 have been marked out. They're his. They belong to the king. And they're, as I said, surely they're identical with the 144,000 in chapter 7. But they, um, they have, it says in verse, in chapter 5, verse 9, that the lamb has purchased them from among the nations. So, 
The lamb is purchased for God from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. He is purchased for him a people. And that phrase is used in chapter 7, verse 9, and it's used to describe the innumerable multitude. The innumerable multitude is the 144,000, the redeemed of all ages. You can tie all those together, so they're different ways of talking about the same groups of people, the innumerable multitude, uh, the people that have been purchased from every tribe and nation and language, and this 144,000 are linked together throughout the passage. One of the ways that they're linked together is that they're called servants, douloi. In the book of Revelation, every time we see that that word servants used, it is referring to the entire community of God's redeemed. So here, they're called duly. They are servants, slaves, if you will, of God. They are his. The fact that there are 144,000 just indicates kind of a perfect number. Um, an unmeasured multitude, if you will. Now, these folks are there. They're also, right, one of the things that we read about them is that they're described as being chaste. So they're, they've not been defiled sexually. Um, they're described as virgins, uh, an all-male army. Now, that would be troubling for some of you. All right. Uh, so the redeemed are only men who are virgins. That that seems, you know, uh, counterintuitive and, and somewhat uh, difficult to understand until you start thinking about the broader image. And in, in that throughout the Bible, sexual imagery is used to note spiritual purity as well. And so at the end, right, Jesus comes for his bride. He will you know, call us up as his pure bride together. But it's in contrast as well to Babylon, the prostitute, and those who are loyal to him. And so Marion would have hit on this, you know, last week as he looked at chapters 12 and 13. The dragon is calling after him, his followers, those who would chase after the harlot. And Jesus, the Lamb, is calling to his followers who are described as being sexually pure. Um, so the imagery shouldn't be confusing for us. It's fairly straightforward. But as they're described here, as they're laid out, as they, as they sing, we understand them to be God's royal army. These are his warriors, the Lamb's warriors who are ready for battle. They're ready to move out. They've kept themselves pure and undefiled. What are their weapons? This is an important question because their weapons, not described here, are the same as those of the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Remember, the Lamb who's triumphant but slain. And so the weapons of his army, his warriors, carry into battle the same weapons. Love, grace, 
mercy, right? All of the things that, that qualify and quantify who the Lamb is should qualify and quantify who we are as those who follow Him. And so, the final thing, to kind of full circle this 144,000, this army, is what is it that they're doing and they're singing? The text says they're singing a secret song known only to the redeemed of the Lord. Why? Because that's the only song we're singing in heaven. (laughs) They're singing a song known only to them. Because not even the angels understand the salvation that God's brought. The angels haven't been purchased. They had nothing to be redeemed from. So they, they just get to look in and they get to ponder and long for and, and attempt to understand what it is that gives us, the redeemed of God, this song that we sing. And it's the salvation of God. It is the grace and the mercy that we've been shown. It is the lamb that was sacrificed. And, and we get to behold that and we get to see that and we get to understand that and we get to know that. That is the song in our heart. That is the singing that is going on in heaven. The 144,000. Verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and no one can learn the song except the redeemed from the earth. So great is the mystery of the work of God. Not even the angels can sing the song that you and I have the right and the privilege to sing. Let me ask, just as we kind of start winding down, is there, is there a new song in your heart? Right, as you think about where you're at, as you, as you ponder the salvation that you profess, perhaps it's completely foreign to you. You're, you're listening this morning, you're like, I don't have any idea. What would I sing about? Singing, right, is not something we naturally do. Trust me, I, I was just in a play and I had to sing in front of some of you. It was terrifying. But put me, put me out there, right? Put me in the company, the host of God's people. Give me a song like some of the songs that we've sung this morning, and you did really great on that second song. And I'll sing at the top of my voice. Why? One, I'm in the company of people who are singing the same thing that I'm singing. And two, it's a song that resonates in my heart. Um, there are many times throughout the week where I turn to music. I turn to the, to the songs of the faith, right, written with depth and, and clarity about what who God is and what God has done for me. Because that's my song. And it's all I have. Because I... I'm redeemed by Him. It's His blood. It's His salvation that has transformed me and changed me. I have nothing else. Nothing else to sing. There's no great song of Sam. There's no, you have no other song. The only song you have is the song the Lamb has given you. Is that, 
Is that the song you're singing? All right. Quick, very quickly. What follows the singing army of the Lamb is a picture of three angelic announcements and then the blessing at the end. We don't have time to work our way through all of this. Um, The final vision, the final two sets of visions is of the harvest. The first is the grain. It's the harvesting of the church. And the second is the harvesting of the grapes, which is the harvesting of the wicked for destruction. Now, you know, there's no other real way to put it. But when you get that picture, right, you get the picture of things are moving in these visions towards the end. And so here we get a picture. And the picture is at the end, the angel swings his sickle over the earth and harvests the church. And then the angel, the other angel swings his sickle and harvests the grapes, which is, which are those prepared for destruction. And so you get the picture, right? There are two. There are those who follow the lamb and those who follow the beast. And you can go all kinds of places. You're going to hear all sorts of things. But when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Guess what? He's being fairly straightforward. The Bible teaches, right, that there are two groups of people. You can divide them down a number of lines throughout the Bible. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. It begins right there at the beginning of the book of Genesis. You can follow the line all the way through. But those are the two groups. And they end up being the lambs and the beasts. And at the end of time, when God calls it good and done, and the harvest occurs, those are the two groups. And it really is, is, as you look at chapter 14 and the beginning of 15, there's a push because you see the triumphant lamb with his own. And it's a beautiful picture. And you've already seen the beast. And you've seen those who are following him. And you know what that looks like. And that's about it. And as they push to the end, we get the flip. You get the back end, which is another picture of another song. And and what you understand is that the Lamb really does triumph. The Lamb really does win. It may not always look that way. You may struggle to see it that way and to understand it that way. But that is the truth of Scripture. And that is what Revelation 14 and the first part of 15 are presenting for us. A lamb who wins. A lamb who triumphs. A lamb who loves the world all the way to the end. So if you're here this morning, you don't know the lamb, now is as good a time as any. If you're here this morning, you do know the lamb, you're pressing out into the world, you are salt and light. You are the grace and the mercy and the love of the Lord Jesus, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You are the power to transform those who are dying. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to just give you praise this morning for your word, a reminder to us once again of the surety of all things. 
Father, you really are God of all creation. Your plan is coming to fruition, and we are a part of it. And so we bless you. We praise you. Thank you for each one here. Father, as we see this, as we know it, as we understand it, as it resonates in our hearts, Father, would you continue to be at work in us as we are at work in the world, all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing the first and the last of Rejoice, the Lord is King, 309. Let's stand together. Thank you.